0: Welcome to Hispanic Marketing and Public Relations, HispanicMPR.com. This is Elena DelVal, and my guest is Darren Gibby, who is author of Why Has America Stopped Inventing? Today we will discuss the declining innovations in the United States. In addition to his legal practice as a patent attorney with Kilpatrick Townsend, Darren finds time to write about important issues facing America, such as the innovation drain caused by the burdensome patent system. He has dedicated nearly two decades to obtaining patents on hundreds of inventions and building IP portfolios for Fortune 500 companies. He also helps clients enforce and license their patents around the world. And he has monetized patents on a range of products from computer disk drives to inline skates. An accomplished triathlete, he also enjoys backcountry fly fishing trips and skiing in the Rocky Mountains. He lives in Denver with his wife and four children. Darren, welcome.
1: Uh, Thank you for having me on. I appreciate it.
0: It's a topic that maybe for many of us, we don't think about in our day-to-day lives the idea of inventions. I don't know if perhaps I'm alone, but I just assumed that the United States was a hotbed of invention and that we were certainly leading the pack on a worldwide worldwide scale in terms of how many inventions were out there that we were putting forth so that the concept that you put forth in the book is really a surprise and, and a bit of a disappointment. I know that in your research for the book you went back and looked at the history of patents in the United States. Would you tell us a little bit about that?
1: Yeah, let, let me tell you how this started was, you know, I was like you, I just assumed that we were the most innovative generation that America has ever produced. You look at all the electronic gadgets we have in the internet and for sure we are the most innovative. But I began to question that a little bit when people would come into my office and the difficulty in getting them patent protection made it clear that a lot of people were being forced out of the system. And so I went back and I looked and I, I wanted to see was it always this way? Was it this difficult to patent to protect your ideas and did we invent this much before? And what I found was pretty shocking that if you look at 150 years ago, America invented at twice the rate they did now. If you, if you take that on a per capita basis, Americans invented twice as much as they did now. And so uh, that was so shocking. I said, I said, what is going on? What is driving all of this? And so I started looking at, at historical aspects of how the patent system create, was created and how it fostered innovation. And it was just a fascinating story. Um, the way that it really started was with the Constitution, and when it was first passed, there's a clause in it to protect the useful arts and sciences. And so after the Constitution was passed, George Washington uh, urged Congress to go ahead and, and implement an act that would protect innovation. And kind of the person who spearheaded a lot of that was Thomas Jefferson, He wanted to be the first uh, head of the patent office, although they didn't have a patent office back then. And they created uh, a little commission or a committee that would look at all the patent applications and award patents and uh, the first patent act really followed an ancient venetian patent act that was passed in the 1400s it was very similar to it it would give you a uh, you know a patent term of about 14 years there would be a, a committee that would look at your application and would decide if it's new and if it was so they w- they would give you a patent that would let you stop others from making your idea well thomas jefferson he wanted to look at every single patent application. He thought they were that important. He thought the whole destiny of America was based on innovation. Well, as he got going after his first few months, he got involved with dueling with Hamilton and he found it less and less desirable to look at all these patents. He didn't have time. and. After about the end of a couple years, he had just had it with looking at all these patents and said, this is too much. We don't have a government that can do this. I'm just going to resort to a registration system where all you have to do is file your application, pay some money, and we'll give you a patent. And then we'll let the courts decide whether you really have invented something. That turned out to be a disaster and the the person who caught the brunt of that was Eli Whitney because when he came up with the patent gin, when he tried to stop the southern planters from copying his idea, no southern court was going to uphold that patent. And so he filed ski lawsuits and he lost every single one of them before he finally won his first one. And so it wasn't until the 1830s that Congress looked at this and said, this is a disaster. Let's go back and kind of relook at what we've done, and in 1836, they passed a new patent law that was very similar to the first one, and that's where you see this huge innovation uh, groundswell just starting to take off from 1836 to the 1900s. Innovation just boomed on a a, really an exponential scale.
0: Darren, you said at the beginning that 150 years ago, more or less, if I understand correctly, there were twice as many patents as today. What was the actual number of patents, do you know?
1: Well, it depends on the the year. And um, at first, when the New Patent Act was started in 1836, there was probably only, you know, several hundred, several thousand filed, but that number escalated to the hundreds of thousands very quickly. Now, granted, the U.S. population was also you know, significantly increasing at the time. But if you normalize that and, and and just look on a per capita basis, the the rate really was twice what it is today. And, and it slowly started tailing off in the, you know, mid-1900s. And, you know, the question is why. What happened that created this situation that we're now in? And, and we can talk about that further.
0: I, just so I can get my arms around it, because we have a numbers-oriented audience here, You're saying that at one point early on there were hundreds of thousands of patent applications or if you want to distill that to a per capita number, what would you estimate was the per capita patent registration number in the country?
1: You know, I don't have that exact number off the top of my head uh, other than what it was then versus today is a a two-to-one ratio. And, you know, today we file in the 300,000s is usually what's getting filed per year, about 300,000 applications. But it was, you know, 100,000, you know, towards the end of the 19th century. So you can see how much of a population we have now versus back then, and the rate of filings has not increased that much.
0: So relative to the overall number, which is more than 300 million right now, that certainly would be a a very telling tally, one of the things that you talk about in the book is that it's become very cumbersome and, if I understood correctly, that it's gotten to the point where it's impossible for a a garden variety regular inventor to file a patent registration. Would you tell us about that?
1: Yeah, and that's true, and I think that's what the the result of the lack of uh, innovation in America is, is largely attributable to that. So if you were to come to my office, say you'd come up with a, a great idea, a new microphone that uh, took out static when you were in, uh, recording podcasts, and, and you said, Darren, can you get me a patent application on this? I would say, yes, we can file on it. It will probably cost you from twenty to $30,000 to get your patent, and it will probably take four, four to five years to get it through the patent office. So you're looking maybe $30,000 over four to five years, which is a lot of money. Most people don't have that. But even worse, once you do get your patent, suppose somebody has copied your, your design, um, maybe some Chinese companies importing into the U.S., and you need to bring a patent infringement suit to stop that infringement. It would easily cost you 2 to $5 million to bring that lawsuit. And, and for the vast majority of startup um, inventors or small small to medium-sized companies, there's absolutely no way that they can afford those kinds of costs. And so what I see in my office on a typical day, I'll have uh, somebody come into my office, maybe even, you know, they've got some venture money behind them or maybe none at all, and we'll have this discussion even before we start talking about the merits of their invention and they'll just shake their head and say, I cannot come up with that kind of money and they leave empty-handed and it, it really is disheartening to see that happening.
0: Of those 300,000 patent applications that you described a minute ago, what percentage would you say are approved to actually make it through the whole process?
1: Well, that's an, a great question, and the numbers are a little bit hard to get a hold of from the patent office, and they change over time, kind of an ebb and flow with a political climate. Uh, just a number of years ago, maybe, say, in uh 2008, 2009, uh, when you had some patents coming out of the patent office like the Amazon one-click patent that got a lot of bad press, the commissioner uh, informally told a lot of the examiners and a lot of the groups, especially the software groups, to stop issuing patents, and the allowance rate fell well below 12%. Um, That was kind of a low point for the patent office, but you can just imagine that only 12% issuing. And that, that was driving up the cost. Since then, we have a, a new commissioner. Yeah, he's from IBM, the ranks of IBM. And he said, you know, we can't run a patent office this way. Uh, we 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 can't be the unpatent office. We need to be patent office. And let's start issuing patents again. And his goal is to probably get that up into the 80% range. A- and they're working pretty good at doing that. So patents are getting through a little bit easier Um I would say, in my experience, maybe half probably could get through right now.
0: So that, if we go back to that example of the small business or the, the inventor that comes to your office and you say, well, it's going to cost you twenty to $30,000, it's going to take four to five years, and at the tail end of that you have to add, and there's only a 50% chance that your patent might be approved, or maybe that number is even lower because it's a loan inventor?
1: Yeah, could be. Could be. And, and ultimately, here's another thing a lot of people don't understand about patents is if you have a good attorney, you can almost get through anything. The, the question is, is, does your, is your patent any valuable when it gets out of the patent office? Because not all patents are equal. And you go through a negotiating process as you try to get your patent application through the patent office. And as you negotiate, you give up some of the scope of your rights uh, based on the examiner's position and the, the prior inventions that the examiner has found. So that if the patent office can force you to narrow your claims so that they are so narrow, uh, they really don't protect your product so anybody can just slightly tweak your idea and your patent is so narrow that it can't cover it, then at the end of the day, your patent's useless anyway. And so that's what a lot of the expense is, is this going back and forth with the patent office trying to get your patent through unscathed so that it covers not only the design you want to go to market with, but designs that are somewhat close so that if a competitor just tries to squeak around your patent a little bit, you can still have some room to try to stop that.
0: If I understand this process correctly, it's incredibly challenging. There's no way that you can make it on your own, meaning without the assistance of an expert attorney. Your chances even then are very Limited. And even if you get through the process, it's not going to be necessarily what you wanted to patent. And then once you get all of that done, your enforcement costs if somebody violates your patent are over the roof. What, what draws that enforcement? Why is it that the enforcement is so expensive and so difficult?
1: Yeah, that's that's another good question. You say, how in the world can you spend 2 to $5 million trying to enforce your patent? And it didn't always used to be this way. One historical tidbit that's kind of interesting is in the 1850s when Goodyear finally got his patent. He he was in uh, debtor's prison more often than he was out. Because he was using all his money to try to come up with vulcanized rubber. But when he finally did get his patent, there was this really colorful character named Horace Day that kept copying his designs. And Goodyear was fortunate enough to get some funding, and so they went after Horace Day. The, The case went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court and Goodyear's investors decided they were going to hire the best person they knew of to bring the case and so they hired Daniel Webster. The only problem was that Daniel Webster was serving as Secretary of State at the time but he still agreed to do the case. He did it uh, over Christmas break so that he had enough time to do it. Uh, he was heavily in debt because he liked to wine and dine people and so he needed the money and he said, the only way I'm going to handle this case is if you pay me $10,000. And everybody just thought that was outrageous. The, the press just had a heyday with it uh, when they got a hold of this. Well, uh, he did handle the case. Webster won the case, uh, collected the 10000 and they also gave him a $5,000 kicker for winning. He paid off his debts, and then three months later, he unfortunately passed away. But if you look at that compared to today, that uh, that 10000 even if you converted it to today's dollars, it's nowhere near those numbers. And, and what's driving those costs are a number of factors. One is that over the last 150 years, our legal system has become so complex, and specifically in the patent arena. And the way that that's become complex is because well-meaning people, mostly patent profession, has added on doctrine after doctrine over the years to try to make the system more fair. But then when you try to go enforce your patent, there's all, all different ways that people can try to invalidate your patent or argue that they don't infringe. Um, and, and the discovery laws that we have today and the experts that you need to hire, by the time you make all those arguments, you spent a couple of years with a whole team full of attorneys uh, you know, working around the clock, and, and bills just escalate to that amount. Um, so, so part of it's attributable to our complex patent system. Part of it's attributable just to the nature of litigation in the U.S. and the costs involved there. But it didn't always used to be that way, and I'm not convinced that it needs to be this complex to be fair. So let me give you a, another example. A couple of years ago, I handled a case in Germany. It was a patent infringement case. Uh, Based on German law, it was a German patent. The case went all the way up to the German Supreme Court, and we argued that case. And after we had won the case, I was a little bit worried about how much the bill was going to be to charge my client. And so I asked the German attorney who was helping me and said, I need to know how much this is going to cost me. And she said, Well, did you fly over here business class? And I said, Yes. And she said, don't worry, your your ticket for your airline will probably be more than I will charge you. Um, It wasn't exactly the case, but the entire case was $30,000. We got the decision the same day that we argued it, and I thought it was a fair decision. And so it begs the question is, why couldn't we do this in the U.S.? Why couldn't we adopt a system like that that's fair yet is cost-effective?
0: That example that you shared actually brings me to my next question, which I was thinking as we were discussing this whole process of getting your patent registered and the exorbitant costs and time involved in enforcing it, which is once you do all of that in the United States, your patent is only registered in the United States. Is that right?
1: That's exactly right. So U.S. US patent. Uh, will only be good to stop somebody from making, using, or selling in the United States. So if you have products overseas, you'll need to get patents in each of those countries, and that can be quite ex- expensive as well.
0: Technology. Are there agreements between countries that can extend your patent registration beyond the boundaries of the U.S.? Say, for example, something that comes to mind is North America. Is there an agreement that would pro- protect your patent in Canada and Mexico if you had registered it in one of the three countries?
1: Yes, currently there are no agreements in place where a U.S. patent could be enforced in another country there is an international treaty called the Patent Cooperation Treaty where you can file a single patent application, say, in the United States, and then use that to go into different countries. Uh, what that is primarily used for today is a stall tactic uh, to delay the expenses that you will need to incur in those foreign countries. So, for example, if you filed your U.S. application uh, in January of 2011, uh, you would have 18 months, and so you know July of 2012 to file in those foreign countries, and those foreign countries would recognize your U.S. filing date. But but that it's really just a placeholder; it doesn't give you any rights. A few um, foreign countries have uh, done some regional agreements where a patent, a patent, say from the European Patent Office, can be enforced in any of the European Union states. There's also a a Eurasian patent office that does something similar. But that's only good for Europe. So if you've got one patent in Europe, you could enforce it in Europe. But there really are no agreements where your U.S. patent could be used overseas. And I'm unaware of any movement to change that.
0: A New York Times article that I read very recently titled The Piracy Problem... How Broad, which is about online piracy and downloads of mostly video and music, quotes a Viacom executive whose name the article does not reveal because this executive was not authorized to discuss the matter on the record. But this is what the executive says. If intellectual property developed by creative people and covered by copyright was as respected as intellectual property developed by engineers and protected by patents, this problem would greatly improve. What do you say to that? You're in the business of patent registration and enforcement. Do you think that's accurate?
1: I can't say that that is accurate. Except the extent that it's much easier to download a piece of software or a piece of, or, you know, segment of music or video than it is to develop a product and market it. A lot of that may be driven from just the technology point of view, whether it's, where it's so much easier to copy music than it is to copy, say, an automobile engine. Uh, Some of that's driving that. I think in in terms of people who want to avoid infringement of of a patent and they have the wherewithal to do it, uh, they certainly can do that. Now, I will say, too, that large companies in the United States, I have noticed, generally do respect all kinds of intellectual property, copyrights and patents. And what large companies usually do, if they see a good product, that they want is part of their portfolio, they have a number of options. They'll go look at that product and see if it's covered by a patent. If it's not covered by a patent, they'll consider it's fair game and they will just copy it and they are legally within the rights to do that. If it does have a patent, then they have a, a decision to make. They don't want to just baldly infringe somebody's patent, but they know that the patent system is in their favor, so they might uh, They'll look at the uh, patent and see how broad it is, and if they think there's some ways to work around it, they'll work around it and then just kind of challenge the patent holder to come after them, knowing very well that if it's a small player, that that person is never going to come up with enough money to challenge it, and so if you're this small company and you have just a small, narrow patent, and big company decides they want your product you really have a difficult situation because you don't have enough money to stop them. And if they've done a little bit of work to try to secure your patent, it's hard for you to get a law firm that would be willing to take that on contingency to try to go after them. So you can see, again, that the patent laws in the United States heavily favor large companies. And the way that large companies protect their ideas is they will just file dozens and dozens of patents around a single product so that if another company tries to skirt around one of the patents, they have 10 more to come after them with. And that's a great strategy, and it works well. The unfortunate part is what small startup company can put 10 patents around every product.
0: What's the obvious rule?
1: Yes, the the doctrine of obviousness is very interesting, and it it did not exist 150 years ago. And the way that it came about was... uh, people started thinking that patents were being granted too easily that something had an idea couldn't just be a trivial advancement over what something was already out there that had to be this great flash of genius or this, you know, just this extraordinary uh, leap in inventive activity, and a lot of this came from the courts, and it went all the way up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and they did a couple of cases where they said, well, if you want to get a patent, you have to show that you had this flash of genius compared to what was out there before, and you came up with something that that nothing could have been thought of. Well, the the problem with that approach is, is, you know, how do you implement that? How do you know that somebody had this flash of genius? Well, the way that it was implemented and the way that it works today is that when a patent examiner picks up your application, he or she will go and do a search to see if they can find a, a prior idea, usually in a patent, that's similar to what you're trying to claim. Now, most of the time, they can't find one single reference that describes everything that you're doing. And so what they'll do is they'll go search for two or three different uh, references or patents and say, well, if you take uh, element A out of the first reference, element B out of the second reference, and element C out of the third reference, you combine those, you get your uh, product that has elements A, B, and C in it. Well, We can see the problem with that approach is that every invention is a combination of old elements. And so a patent attorney can at will reject Every single application, just by going out and cobbling together bits and pieces of what's already out there, and so that's one of the reasons why it's so difficult to get patents today. Is because with the blessing of the U.S. Supreme Court, patent examiners can go out and do this, and they do do it as a matter of routine. I would say probably ninety-five percent of all patent applications that are filed, the first time that it gets examined, or they will be rejected. Gets examined, it will be rejected, and it will be on the grounds of obviousness where an examiner has combined multiple references and says your idea is obvious. And, of course, the, the patent applicant has to go back and argue with the examiner, and this arguing goes back and forth for months or years, and that's what really drives the cost for getting a patent. And then even if you get the patent when you try to enforce it, the person you're trying to enforce it against can argue that your patent is invalid because the defendant will go do their own search, come up with two or three references and say your idea is obvious because you can combine these three things and get your idea. And so that's why litigation costs are driven up as well.
0: It just seems that the obstacles are never-ending. It's amazing that anybody files a patent registration application, never mind 300000 a year.
1: Well, you're right that it is difficult, but the problem is, is that if you have an idea and it's a good idea and you want to get into business, if you want to be able to stop anybody from copying that idea, really the best piece of intellectual property for doing that is a patent. Um, You know, trademarks, which uh, protect the brand name, are a good way to build up you know goodwill associated with your company but somebody can still copy your idea and so it really is something that you'll need and if you're a small inventor and your goal is is to to build up a company of relatively small size and then have a big company buy you out, when the company comes to do their due diligence to see if they want to purchase the the smaller company, they will go and, and do a search to see what patents protect that idea and if there's no protection for that idea, the company will be hesitant to purchase that product or at least pay a premium for it. Because they know that once they incorporate this into their line, uh, another company can come and do the same thing, but without having to pay the cost for buying that business. And so, you know, people still do file patents and big companies file patents. The big electronic companies, the drug companies who have a lot of money, they invest heavily in patents. It's not unheard of for these large companies to to spend one to five to six million dollars a year just in getting patents uh, because it's so important to their business.
0: Now, it's my understanding that most innovation, most creative ideas are born in small companies. This is how many of today's large companies came to being. But once upon a time, they started out in somebody's garage or somebody's extra in-law quarters and they took their little idea, their creation, and from there they grew or they were bought out. And if so, if that's the case, and these patents can only now be filed by large companies, this must be having a freezing effect on innovation nationally. What are your thoughts on that?
1: Well, that's exactly the position I'm taking. And you know, I uh, I wrote this cute little article a little while ago uh, called The Little Fish. It was based on this uh, Sesame Street show where the, the fisherman goes out and is fishing and gets a snag and, and gets mad and goes and tears up all the weeds and, and, and then he can't uh, catch any fish and somebody comes along and says, hey, well, you know, there's no little fish and all the big fish eat the little fish, but you've gotten rid of all the little fish, so that's why you can't catch any big fish. That's really what we've done in the United States is we've gotten rid of all the little fish and so there's no big fish to to, to to so-called feed off those. Historically, that was not the case. And there's a lot of research that shows that during the 19th century, they looked at who was doing the innovating and it was just the ordinary American. It was the farmer, it was the tinker that were coming up with all these good ideas. And that's really what made America One of the classic examples that I discuss in uh, my book is that uh, one of the greatest inventions of the 19th century was the grain Reaper, where no longer did people have to go out and do this by hand, and it really changed the landscape of America. It uh, increased the amount that could be harvested just by orders of magnitude. One of the uh, significant players on that was McCormick and McCormick realized the value of patents and what McCormick would do was he would see how the ordinary farmer would take his product and during the year would see problems with it and they would tinker with it and make improvements well what they would do also is they would run to the patent office and they would file for patent protection and they would get a patent on it and so McCormick hired what he called was these patent scouts that would go throughout the country uh, at the end of every harvest season and try to find the best uh, improvements that were made during the year and then he would go and buy up all these patents from these farmers and he would pay them for them and over the winter he would incorporate all those designs into his product and so the next model would have these improvements and so basically what McCormick was doing is he was making the entire United States his R&D lab and that's what we should be doing today, we should be able to stimulate the average American to be able to invent so that big companies can buy these up. And big companies are absolutely fabulous with making products safe, with marketing them, then getting them out to the public. But what they're not so great at is coming up with these new ideas. And traditionally, they have just purchased these from smaller companies. But you're absolutely right. We get rid of the smaller companies the the bigger companies are not going to be coming out with as many products, and I, I think we are now seeing that.
0: In that example that you shared with us earlier about how the process is so efficient and affordable in Germany, one of the things that made me think about was, are they having the opposite situation that we have? Do they have a lot of inventions? Are there a lot of patent registrations in Europe?
1: Well, in Germany, there certainly is now. The, the European Patent Office, you know, has some of its own issues, uh, largely from labor costs and what they have to pay people to be examiners over there. So they they have high costs as well, and, and you can see the effects of that in Europe. When you look at, you say, you know, who's obtaining most of the patents these days, and and who's going to be uh, you know, America's competition going forward. Germany is actually one of the major players, but you also have to look to Asia to see what's happening over there. And, you know, China has repeatedly made announcements that they are going to be the most innovative, innovative country in the world, and their government uh, heavily subsidizes their filing of patents. And so even though that it's really expensive to file in the United States, the Chinese government... Uh, Absolutely, without a doubt, subsidizes filing applications in the United States so that they can protect Chinese innovation, so that they, you know, they can be in the driver's seat. And if they get a bunch of patents, then they can use the expensive U.S. patent system to their benefit. It's funny that that, that, you know other countries are turning our own patent system against us.
0: That is, um, that's really amazing. You talk about some ways that this broken down system can be fixed. Would you share those with our listeners?
1: Yeah, there's a number of ways that you can deal with this. Of course, the best would be to, you know, change the patent laws. Unfortunately, I don't think that's realistic in that in December of 2011, Congress just passed what's called the America Invents Act, which was an an original attempt to address all these problems. The unfortunate part about the America Invents Act is that as the debate started going on about what should be in that, the largest companies in America uh, did a huge lobbying effect and put in a lot of provisions to protect their interests rather than protecting the interests of the small inventor. And so you have this bill that was designed originally to help foster innovation, which in the end is probably going to make it even more expensive. So then the big question is, if I'm a small inventor, I'm a startup, how can I work within the system to to at least be a player? And there are a number of things which I've seen people be successful at. Um, The first one is just to educate yourself uh, by going over the topics that we've talked about today, just so you know what you're up against. But then you can be nimble and, you know, try to have the patent system work for your benefit. And here's some examples. One is you can file what's called a provisional application, where it doesn't need to be any format. You can just write it on your own, and you file that with the Patent Office. That provisional application is never examined. It's a placeholder for a year until you can convert it to a regular application. So what a lot of people will do is they'll, they'll file this provisional application, and then they have a year to work like mad to try to go out and drum up interest or start selling product and to get some kind of investment money coming in so that at the end of the year they'll have enough money to file a regular application and get going from there. That's a pretty good um, strategy. Some other strategies are to uh, realize that since you're not going to be able to have a huge patent portfolio, to use just your patent as one part of your strategy in making your company succeed. Um uh, one example I have of that is, uh, you know, the Boppy Company, which makes baby pillows. They're one of my, uh, big clients. While they file a lot of patent applications, if you were to ask them what's their most important piece of intellectual property, they will tell you it's their trademark. Because when people, uh, walk into Babies R Us and they see a Boppy pillow, they understand what that is. They understand it's high quality and that even if, uh, they can go on the internet and find somebody who's trying to do a copy, they would rather have the high quality pillow because they're putting their baby safety at risk and they know that Boppy will make a product, uh, that will be safe. And so you can do things like that as well. Another strategy that you can have if you have, if you yourself or somebody within your company is a good writer and can understand the patent system, they may be able to write some of the applications on their own and then just have a patent attorney at the end help them out with it. I have a great client called Paul Turner who invented rock shocks, the shocks on the mountain bikes. He sold that company, but he's got another a number of companies now where he makes improvements to bicycles, and he does a lot of that work on his own and then just has me file on it, and then he will go and do all the negotiating himself and that has uh, proved successful as well. Uh, let me give you one other example is that you can do other kinds of marketing strategies in combination with your patent. Uh, one example of that is T.J. Izzo. Um, he invented the double-strap golf bag. You see all the caddies using now you go into any golf store, they'll have that. Well, he scraped together enough money to get a patent on it, but when he tried to go out and license it, nobody really wanted to pay him for it because they just – didn't think that, that was right, that he could get a patent on it. So, what he did was he kept his royalty rate extremely low, which I thought was a good idea, and I think it's the major stumbling block of most small inventors as they've invented something and they want to get paid millions of dollars for it. You need to realize that big companies don't want to do that. But if you make the price right, they'll absolutely jump on it. So, DJ kept the price pretty low. He signed up a lot of people and then he, he did some other things like set up junior golf tournaments that he would sponsor and he would say, well, let's do this as a joint venture because if you get more younger people golfing, when they get older, they'll golf and they'll buy your products and that was a nice tie-in. So tie-ins work as well. So I guess in summary, there are a number of good, just good business practices that make sense that can help you get positioned in the market, will hopefully get you enough money that you can get some patent protection. So that you can be successful in the market and then at the end if somebody wants to come buy you out, you'll have at least enough protection so that you'll be able to get a premium price on what you really deserve for what you've developed.
0: What suggestions, what tips and ideas would you share with our listeners, Darren, who are considering entering into the field of innovation who have an idea that they want to develop or maybe they have already developed it? Do they need to have a working model, for example, in order to file a patent or is it just a written description of what they plan to invent? What what would you say are the top three things that they need to take into account in order to move forward in this process or to even figure out if if it's feasible.
1: Yeah, another great question. And a question I often get is whether you have to actually build something before you file an application on it. And the answer is no, you do not. Uh, Historically, you used to have to submit a patent model to show that you'd actually built that, and I think we should return to that. Um, But aside from that, you you do not have to have that. All you really need to be able to demonstrate is that you can describe your idea in a document that's good enough so that one of your peers could make and use your invention. That's what the statute calls for. So if you've come up with a mechanical type of idea, um, you need to have good three-dimensional drawings to show how you would build it and then have a good description of that. I always recommend that people actually build it uh, before they file a patent application because in the process of building it, you learn a lot of things and then you don't waste a lot of time uh, in preparing your patent application. Uh, and so uh, that, that, that those are probably the top two things is to be able to concretely understand what your idea is be able to uh, describe it in text form and in drawings so that one of your peers can make and use that. And then once you have that information, then you can go to a patent attorney and file the application, or you can go the other route of just filing it on your own as a provisional application, as I mentioned before, and that will give you a year to do that. Now, to file patent applications today, if you want to do it on your own, you can go to the patent office website, which is uspto.gov, and they have a way to do that. It's very difficult uh, to do that. Uh, I've tried to do some on my own, and I put a little tutorial on my website to help people try to do that, but it will save you a bundle of money, and it's definitely worth trying, at least for a provisional application, to give you a year until you'll need to convert that to a non-provisional.
0: One of the thoughts that comes to my mind is for somebody who is that small inventor that we were talking about, or that we've been talking about the whole time in, in a way, that is the core that everybody else builds on, how do you decide? Is there some sort of a test that helps you decide when you take into account all of the expenses, all of the complications and the roadblocks, and in terms of not just filing the patent but enforcing it, because say that you go through all of these hoops and you actually win—you know, the odds favor you and you, you are registered—but then somebody comes from out of the country and copies your address, uh, your address, your idea, and now all of this money that in time that you've invested is lost how do you decide you know because you talked about that narrowness of the patent that you are actually granted that many can circumvent by just tweaking something is there some sort of a test that i don't know a questionnaire how do you figure out whether it's worth doing this 30 to 40 thousand dollars minimum and 4 to 5 year process which you also said can be as high as one or 2 million dollars How do you know whether you should even be in this process?
1: Yeah, another good question. And some of the things that you can do is you can do a search beforehand. You can either do that on your own, going to the patent office website or on the internet or hiring a professional searcher to go out and to see what's already out there. And for couple thousand dollars, you can get a pretty good feel for what's already been invented. It's no guarantee, but you'll at least get a pretty good feel. If the searcher comes back with something that's very similar to what you've invented, then you'll know it's probably not worth seeking a patent. But if there's really nothing out there, then you feel relatively comfortable that you can go ahead and spend this money. But at the end of the day, you you really don't know because there's just so many articles and so much prior art out there. With search to that extent, you really don't know whether you've captured everything. But it's a prudent thing to do if you're going to spend that kind of money. And with the search tools today on the Internet, a lot of people can do this on their own and do a pretty good job of it. So you don't really need to hire, you know, spend a couple thousand dollars to do that. You can do a first cut on your own to see what comes out there. And I would highly recommend doing that.
0: Thank you, Darren, for joining us from Denver, Colorado.
1: Thank you for having me. I appreciate it.
0: And to our audience, thank you for listening to Darren Gibby, who is author of Why Has America Stopped Inventing? to discuss the declining innovations in the United States. Please share your suggestions, questions, and ideas by leaving a comment on the hispanicnPR.com website. If you or someone you know would like to be on the show, you can email me directly at editor at hispanicmpr.com. That's editor at hispanicmpr.com.